Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And so it's the morning after the Giro. Thank you to everybody who has tuned in to Never Strays Far Fally the past three weeks. I'm not sure how Ned and I did it, to be honest. Certainly one of our sillier ideas. I do know why we did it, though. We both love bike racing, the strange places it takes us. Most of our conversations end up being about other stuff. The straying is in the title. I have conversations with Ned that I have with nobody else. I spent yesterday going through all the episodes and extracted what I think are the best bits, then spent an inordinate amount of time cutting them all together. I also started commentating on the Dauphiné for ITV, for the first time without the doc, which reminded me how much we're going to miss him. Ned and I will be doing our proper job together as of today as he arrives from Italy to commentate from Girona with me, albeit socially distanced. Beyond all that, I have the relaunch of Chapter 3, my cyclewear brand, this week. Ned is also continuously working on the magnificent roadbook. Clicking the link in the show notes and signing up for all our news is all we ask in return for your loyalty and listening. Oh, and ask some friends to subscribe to this show. That genuinely shows your support. Thank you. Now, let's look back over three weeks of touring. Good morning, Ned. Ciao, Davide. Where are you? I'm in Ascoli Piceno, where the sun's out. There are light winds from the east, and the temperature is currently 15 degrees. But predicted to rise to 21. Meets the SS75 at the intersection with the trains to and from the town are subject to significant delays due to the lack of a railway track or station. comes to town today, so look out for temporary. Several temporary road closures are in place. Some multiple road closures on all approaches as the local economy grinds to a complete halt. 6:37. 6:37 a.m. Here are the Pixies and Debaser. Here's Shack Attack. And now, Supertramp. Just a little bit of a reminder to our listeners the concept of our, our show and the fact that oh, right. we're getting Can you up. Remind and, me as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> still going to make it up now as I go along. Yeah. Uh, no, we, we, we spoke a, a couple of weeks a couple of weeks ago because we hadn't done Never Strays Far in since December. Yeah. And we need to. I've, I've been saying we hadn't done it for four months. So I actually checked and we hadn't done it for five months. There you go. Nearly half a year. Oh, nearly. That's half a regularity. A year. Yeah. So we thought in a classic fashion we'd flip the other side of the coin and do it every day for three weeks or over three and a half weeks <laughs> just because we're stupid and so that means we're we're on the phone to each other hence the croaky voice bit at six forty-five most mornings to do this and try and get it out and yeah. the point being is that we know from working on bike racing you're there often a lot of the information comes in overnight and you get a little bit of time to digest everything and we thought it would be really cool for, for us to do catch-ups the morning after and then for people to be able to listen to it uh on their way to work or breakfast to kind of get that that classic morning show update of what happened the day before and so it's it, this is sponsored by chapter three and the roadbook and we'll go more into them as the race goes on but actually it's more about ned and i just catching up and talking about bike racing every morning and and trying to keep this up and it's going to be a, a challenge but i think we're up for it now <laughs> So yeah, so it was just a 
poignant, let's say. David, for, for those who don't know the story, just explain what happened the following day in terms of the race and your involvement in, in how the peloton mm. sort of behaved collectively the following day. It's, so when something oh, doesn't really happen, but um, and for that reason, we didn't really know what to do. And the evening uh, of the day that Walter uh, died, um, I'd been given the pink jersey and all of a sudden... That became, I became the representative for the riders. It's, it's quite a phenomenal thing. And I guess it was a combination of things. It wasn't as if I was a neo pro. I was pretty late in my career and was outspoken with the media. So I had a, I think the peloton was quite relieved that it was me, but it did mean that we didn't know how to ride. There was all this talk of strike, just not just striking strong, not right racing the next day. Um, or what are we going to do? Are we just going to do part of it? Or, and so eventually I, I couldn't sleep that night, obviously, because I was so just wondering what to do. And I woke up in the morning and I suddenly, and I went to breakfast and I still remember this. And I, and I was embarrassed. I didn't know whether I was supposed to take control or anything. And because it was, it, I was just overwhelmed with everything that was going on. I, I stayed with Tyler in his room most of the evening, making sure he could sleep. So I had kind of stayed with him and looked after him. And when I went to breakfast the next morning, it was, we were about eight, six teams in our hotel, I guess. And then riders just kept came, coming up to me and patting me on the back and shaking my hand. Not in congratulations for the, for the previous day, but just as a, you've got this. Like, you, you know what to do. We'll follow whatever your lead is. And my kind of insecurity of not, and not sleeping all through the night of wondering what to do was then bolstered. And I, and I felt my kind of, I started to s- sit up slightly straighter in my chair and not hide from everybody. And so then I made the decision. I went to my room, got my pink jersey and went down to the team bus and just sat there waiting to go. And when I got there, went to where the director of sportifs were having their big meeting, trying to decide what to do. And I still remember this. This was amazing. And it was, you're going in there, it was so noisy because everyone was just trying to figure out what to do. Certain writers were saying this, press was saying this. There was obviously a lot of uproar about how it had been handled as well, the danger of the descent and different things. And the moment I walked in, the whole place went silent. And uh, they just looked at me and some I could hear like Maglia Rosa, Maglia Rosa. And that's it heard, heard that whisper around the whole room. And and I saw Maro Veni and uh I went and spoke to him because he's who was the technical director at the time. And then a couple of other guys and I said, Look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to ride today. And every single team, so I think it was actually two hundred and twenty kilometers that day's stage, and we're twenty two teams. I said we'll do ten Ks each in in reverse order of the GC. So the last team on GC will do the first 10 Ks and then we'll just do that at 10 Ks and everyone rides through and we'll just keep the momentum up. And that's how we'll ride him. We're not going to do a procession. We'll ride with discipline and we'll ride with authority and respect. And, and that's what we did. And it was a, and it was a very, and then with two Ks to go, we let, um, uh, it was Leopard was the team that he was on drift off the front. So and with Tyler went and joined them. And so it was Tyler and, and that, that team and Tyler was just uncontrollable, emotional mess, rightfully so. And I still regret one of my biggest regrets from that day is no one's was when I crossed the line, I was so tired from the previous day, the previous night, not sleeping, the stress of that day. And I just wanted to hide. So I got across the finish line and just went straight into where the podium is and didn't go and see Tyler. And Tyler had just broken down completely. And I was one of his best friends at the time and had stayed with him the whole night before. But I didn't want to go and see him and kind of hug him in in public because I thought I'd break down. I thought it just I felt that I was being very British and I didn't want to show emotion. And that's still one of my biggest regrets. That I didn't just go and look after him because I was a kind of a big brother to him. But 
uh, yeah, so it was a pretty powerful day. And it's um, one, as I said, I don't need to, to kind of commemorate because it's always there. Uh, amazing stuff, David. Um, did you watch yesterday's stage? I did. Where is the pink jersey as the camera looks down and sees him there? I think we can say goodbye to the stay from Attila Valter in the pink jersey. But look at the way Bouchard is riding now. And Kern Bauman. You cannot separate them. Egan Bernal. After all, is he going to break the hearts of the two riders at the front? Look how fast he's going up the road. On this massive stage that has been brutal from start to finish. And one rider, one rider above all, rises to the top and takes the win, takes the jersey and makes a huge statement. You're going to have to dig very deep and do something special to stop Egan Bernal winning the Giro. Well, that was a bike race, Ned. <laughs> Crikey, wasn't it? Uh, I mean, that's definitely what it was we can be sure of that yeah but now um, is back that was yeah his back doesn't seem to hurt does it no he's literally his back Not without the back problem it's um i mean that was just violent uh, it's i mean you you referenced it when you sent me a message either that it was like tyson had just entered the ring when he went and it was only after that that i, I watched it and i was like whoa that was whew. I mean, it's just, and he's yeah. clicked into the big ring at the end as well. It was, yeah. it was like a full-blown kind of, well, it was just a very, very long sprint. It was a, uh, it was amazing. Yeah. The, the thing, the thing that you mentioned with the big ring, I think is, is the absolutely the salient detail that just kind of goes to explain just how kind of, yeah, violent that was. And, and what the point I was trying to make with, with the Tyson thing was, um, you remember how Mike Tyson just, to my mind, just looked different from any other boxer mm. sort of before or after, you know, um, because he was, there was something slightly uncontrolled about him, wasn't there, Tyson? Yes. Yeah. It, it looked, it looked to me like there wasn't a great deal of souplesse or technique in what he did, just, just raw psychopathic violence when he was sort of 20 years of age. Mm. Well, this looked, um, this looked like a different Egan Bernal, didn't it? When I think of his, uh, his, his, attacks on on big climbs and top you know and a couple of years ago uh they're quite elegant he's quite he's quite poised on a bike doesn't mm. he he looks like he looks really good this just he was thrashing the bike from side to side wasn't he yeah and um as if he was as if that as if that's, that attack has been a long time coming i felt for him you know there was a lot contained within it like a year of frustration and all the doubt surrounding his condition mm. um yeah it did feel like and, that and, all, and i think it's um it's also, we mustn't forget all those attacks we've seen in the past. Um, most, cause we haven't, although he won the Tour de France, we haven't seen him race that much relatively, I think, the, the wider public. And often his attacks are done from quite a long way out. And I, I think I was probably surprised as everybody when he was over the moon yesterday about it being his first ever Grand Tour stage win. And which just was, oh, oh yeah, that's probably why you looked so, aggressive because it was actually an attack in a final for a stage win whereas normally they're 
they're behind the front of the race. Those attacks that he's doing to win GC, they're, they're a long way out. So they have to be very paced and controlled. And as you said, they do often appear quite elegant and, and in control. Whereas this one, he was chasing the finish line and he was going for a win. Mm. And, and it was a very different Egan. And I guess that revealed a lot, a side of him that is always there. We just don't see it because of the way he races normally. Um, but yeah, it's, and I do agree that I think it did feel like, I think for us viewers, it, it was kind of almost like a two-year pent-up kind of release yeah. of possibly tension and just anger and pride. Um, it was really cool to watch. But Tarame had the most to, to win out of that uh, out of that little pairing because he could have, in theory, taken the stage. Um, he's actually won two stages of the Giro in the past, going back. I think the most recent one was in 2016. And you're alluding to, I think, his Vuelta stage win, which was a long time ago now when he was a very young yeah. rider. Well, I just for Paris Nice just in his very first uh, oh, year. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just not winning stuff, but just noticing him at the front. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he... Um, it didn't work. He got his, his, for all his souplesse, the, um, eventually the legs fell off a little bit. I mean, which is entirely understandable, but it was, it was I was willing him on really. Cause he's a lovely bloke as well. I remember a few years ago, I went to commentate on the Arctic race of Norway. And I remember when you did on, that. Yeah. And the day before the race got underway, I, I can't really remember why <laughs> the race organization flew me John Dagenkolb and Ryan Tadame onto a little island just off the coast of Norway by helicopter. Interesting. And then and I, I, don't, I can't really remember why. And then turned around, dumped us on this uninhabited island with a ruined abbey on it, and then turned around and flew back to the mainland to pick a couple of other people up. So for about half an hour, me, John Dagenkolb and Ryan Tadame were on this deserted island just off the coast of Norway with nothing much to say to each other. John Dagenkolb was John Dagenkolb was being super sulky. Actually, we couldn't get a word out of him, which meant that which meant that me and Ryan Tadame, who'd won the race the previous year, were just chatting about this, that, and the other. For I half can just hour. imagine Dagenkolb just like he probably didn't want to be the, at the race in the first place. Roped into oh. a race, probably just wanted to stay in his bed and and cruise social media and yeah. just do nothing. And then he's told he's got to get on a helicopter and go to a random island with, with some Ned British and with some Tarame. British commentator who loves speaking German. Who, <laughs> who like, oh God, not that guy again. <laughs> oh no, I think you've just nailed it. He's like, just don't talk to him. Don't engage him. Don't engage him because he's going to be don't, way no too eye friendly. Contact. No, <laughs> no eye contact. contact. No eye contact. No eye contact. Don't make him speak German. Just stare out, stare out to the horizon. <laughs> don't look, don't look inland at all. Just keep your eyes firmly just, on the horizon. Leave him to tire me. You just Thank like God. keen, eager little German speaking puppy wanting to just like <laughs> chew his ear off. Hi, John. Uh, okay. Hello, Ryan. Hi, Ryan. He's dead. <laughs> just, it's like, he was my, he was my plan B. <laughs> Oh God, that looks but he's, really, he's, really, he's a really nice guy. Turns out he's a really nice guy. And on that particular day, slightly nicer than John Dayton Cop. <laughs> For that reason, I wanted him to win the Malia Rosa and the stage. Because he spoke to you on a foreign lost island in the North Atlantic. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, there you go. Commentator bias coming through. A little bit. 
Anyway, let's go back to the start of your day yesterday. What happened with your run? God, there's always something, isn't there? Every, every mm. time I go out for a run, I, the first run I did was actually, it was relatively incident-free in Turin. But then if you remember, there was the incident with the lap wing. Yeah, that was pretty bad. Ooh, that was really bad. Could have been really nice. I could have had my eyes pecked out. I mean, yeah, I know you weren't there to see it, but take it from me. That could have been, you know, I could have... Haunting. Haunting. <laughs> You've ended up in a in an irrigation ditch by some paddy fields with my eyeballs pecked out, and a, and a lap then you had the, and a lap wing just cheekily sitting there, kind of gobbling them up. That's a that's, a, that's an arresting yeah. image, isn't it? Um, that's an arresting image. It's, it's, it's captured for me. Um, and then you had the, the bubble run. Yeah, I had the bubble. <laughs> <laughs> had the bubble run with the foaming legs. That was just that wasn't so much haunting as um or dangerous as just a little bit humiliating. Um, and then, okay, haunting, humiliating. And then yesterday, I, this I ran away from my palazzo where we stayed yesterday, straight uphill into the Colli de, del Trento, um, that take their name from, you know, the same area as Trento de, uh, what's it called? San Benedetto del Trento, which you know from the Terreno Adriatico. We were very close to that. Oh, yes. Ran up into mm. the hills away from the coast, straight uphill. And as I came close to this, a hamlet with a little collection of houses. I'm always extremely wary of um, houses in Italy, in the countryside, especially early in the morning, David, because I'm terrified of dogs. And um, uh, Italian dogs terrify me more than more than most dogs, actually, because they can be quite barky, a little bit bitey, and they can be quite just rough around the edges and, you know, a bit loose. And um, on this occasion, though, I was reassured by the fact that the dog that I could see was tethered to a human being. Um, and the closer I got, though, I realised that the dog was absolutely enormous, of some indistinct European crossbreed that I couldn't recognise. Appeared to have appeared to be sort of part. Can I just, inter- yeah. can I just interject that note. Yeah. Um, when you say tethered to the human being, do you mean on a lead? It was on a lead. Okay. When I, when I came back down the hill later, it was na- it, the human being had gone, and it was tethered to a pole in a scrappy front garden, and and it had a chain round its neck, and was just running round and round in a kind of frenzy because that's quite often what they do with dogs in Italy. Lovely. Anyway, on this occasion, it was being it had been taken for a walk by a human being, but the human being, bless her, was a very frail and elderly old lady, and um, I've decided because I've been bitten in the past three times by dogs, uh, once by a, um, a, 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 a terrier of some description on the ankles near Plymouth, uh, one, once by a dog uh, in, uh, near Cromer in Norfolk, and once I've been bitten on the arse in my local park by a collie that came up and jumped up and bit me on the arse and drew blood. Okay. So I've got a bit of track record uh, with dogs. So I approach this and I've decided my tactic is always to make um, eye contact and actually make conversation with the human being. Because I think if, if me and the human being can sort of like signal to the dog that it's all cool and that, you know, the dog should just chill a bit, I think that's going to go some way towards defusing the tension in the situation. So with my limited Italian, I said to, I said to this elderly lady, I said, um, buongiorno, ciao, salve, I said, using the Roman phrase for uh, good morning. Um, 
And uh, she said, uh, buongiorno, buongiorno. And then she carried on talking. She carried on talking quite animatedly to the dog. And I became, as I approached, I became quite aware that she was increasingly kind of talking in quite fast, rapid Italian to the dog. Uh, to the dog, not to me. And it was borderline. She started kind of shouting. And then she just stopped dead. And she was straining at the leash because the dog was full on barking at this point. It had gone into attack mode. And the dog probably weighed as much as she did. And it became completely apparent to me that we, she was right on the cusp of losing control of the animal. <laughs> and she started, she almost went down on her knees and was imploring and begging this, uh, this dog to relent. And she was using her entire might to control this mutt, at which point I stopped dead in the road and just stared at them like that. So if you'd, again, if you'd kind of like, come to this situation, just seen a snapshot, you would have seen, you would have seen a, a middle-aged cycling commentator in ill-fitting running shorts, just terrified and frozen to the spot and an elderly lady barely able to control a, a kind of frothing animal that appeared to be blind, by the way. It had sort of like marbled eyeballs. And I pre- presume at this point you were literally um, radiating uh, fear. Of course. You know all the things that you're so supposed that's... to. You're supposed to say, yeah, don't you know, don't show any fear. Mm. How can I do that when I'm absolutely mm. terrified? It, it not only could it, it probably could see it in the blurry through its misty, blinded eyes. Smell it, Dave. I'm sure Didn't, it could smell, did, it. Yeah, smell it. it. It would smell it. Literally smell, smell it. it. But um, somehow I managed to get round, and I'm here to tell the tale. So yeah, another run, mm. another I think you need to rush with death. This. This, this, is a, this is a little bit of a problem you have there with the dogs. Man. I think you need to just. I think the dogs need to sort uh, themselves out. Why is it you're, you're victim blaming? Yeah, the dogs of the I world need to have blaming. a word with themselves. Leave me alone. I'm just going for a run. Ah, back to the race. At the time when Moscone was just drilling yeah. it. So when they came out the tunnel, um, Remco was down the line of fate. I mean, it's a pretty small group, but he was, he'd, he'd lost, he lost position. And no sooner they come out of the tunnel than they hit the gravel climb. And actually, um, you know, uh, you, but you'll know this as president of the um, Remco Evenepoel Girona mm. fan yes. club that you're kind of very much, uh, you know, you run really, don't you? Thank yeah. you. Um, mm. the, he actually, I think with the benefit, I mean, it's, if you look at that footage in detail, I'm sure you have, and kind of zoom in, like have, yeah. like like yeah. Blade Runner, enhance, enhance, yeah. enhance. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. you can minority, minority report. report. Yeah, exactly. If you with your, you've probably got a control room in your in your office <laughs> with a big Remco, Remco screen like that. <clears throat> in your, yeah, kind of like yeah. Remco ball that comes down a little shoot like that. <sighs> anyway, um, that's a bit weird. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, you know what it's like actually. I was just thinking because I'm just looking. I got an amazing kind of shiny white table that's empty at the moment. It would be perfect for having, you know, the way NBC have those three day three D riders. Yeah, they've got proper graphics, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I need. Like a little kind of three D holographic oh, kind of game room in here, and then that way, and I could actually follow Remco in real time in kind of in a 3D projection. Oh, that would be like, mon- like Minority goes. Report. With a, yeah. With, like Minority with Report. The kind of like, awesome. like a touch glove thing that you animate the screen with and yeah, that would be, and, the, and what is it, Vivaldi yeah, one, that plays when he does it? The kind of music? Oh, like that? that would be me. But, me and, me and Remco. But every day, just studying him from afar. Every day of racing, it would be like, there'd be a degree of tension as to which <clears> number, which Dossard number rolls down the ramp, you know, carved into the little ball. Oh, yeah. But every day it's Remco. <laughs> <laughs> and the, compu- the computer comes like up. God. Remco Evenepoel, Belgium. <laughs> 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 
Just, then you, you jump in your day. car and you go off in search of him. Um, <laughs> anyway, anyway, if um, you enhance, enhance, that... enhance the footage and you enhance again and you see in real time that little white jersey of little Remco. Actually, I think he's done a really good ride, is what I'm trying to say. Because he was... He did, he did an amazing ride, because I watched he, it closely. I think he weaves his way. If you had Remco Cam, <clears throat> if you could isolate him on that climb, which unfortunately we can't. Yeah. But I think you'll see him just picking off riders and working his way up. And actually, probably his time, if you took it from the bottom to the top of the climb, is probably second to Bernal. Actually, yeah, you know, I think, I think so. he was second best. Uh, and he, when, because obviously I was <clears throat> watching Remco quite closely, he looked at, although he was going the same speed probably as Egan and Egan, Bernal, uh, in those last K and a half, he looked very in control. He comes across the line still looking just solid on the bike. So it's almost as if he kind of caught out and then, then again, rode a pretty, res- I mean, just controlled, restrained race to damage, limit the damage. So to finish fourth, 10 seconds down on Bernal after being caught out where he was, pff, not terrible. I, I'm not worried. Okay, and also, well, nor should De Koenig Quickstep be because it's exactly as they outlined their plan, didn't they? So, oh, it's given the jersey. It's perfect. Given the jersey, we'll sit on the wheels. It's almost, almost as if they planned almost it. Almost as if they planned it. In the tunnel, break. Go back. We don't want you to win today, Remco. Hold, hold, yeah, make it harder for everybody hold else. Back. Hold back. But, yeah. yeah. Hold so, back. So, the, yeah, so the, that was good. Dan Martin on his wheel. Yeah. Actually, I'll ask Dan. I'll ask Dan. I'll ask Dan. Yeah. He was like literally there in the hot seat. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to ask Dan. I'm going to message. Yeah, he Dan. might be able to get you Remco's autograph as well, mid race or something. A little, you know, little message. Too early, too soon. Too soon. Too, I don't want to put him off. <laughs> yeah, it's not the only kind of like monetization operation at the Grotti di Frassasi either. I'm David, sure it isn't. Because when we came out of the caves, I thought I want a souvenir. I want to, you know, I like on the Tour de France, quite like picking up little souvenirs. Oh, yeah, little ornaments. <laughs> little ornaments. Um, so I went to the souvenir shop thinking I want a little model cave or something like that. A little model stalactite, something like that for maybe 10 euros. I'm looking around and I thought I saw, saw an apron, you know, cooking apron, um, b- a, a Benito Mussolini one. Oh, perfect. I thought that's... That's perfect. That's pu- it's a little bit weird. It's, it's a little bit weird, it's, isn't it? It's a bit punchy. Maybe not a... A little bit too soon still. A little bit too soon. So, but yeah, it's unusual, isn't it? We have a slightly yeah. different take on Benito Mussolini at home. But, but yeah, I didn't fancy it ultimately. I thought maybe you get a mug. So I looked at the selection yeah. of mugs available. And there were, again, I noted quite a lot of Benito Mussolini... <laughs> Benito Mussolini mugs. Um, I was kind of putting them to one side and then I spotted another mug and I kind of turned it round and it, it had um, two names on it actually. It had Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler. Hmm. Definitely too soon. Unusual. Uh, I, 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 I left it on the, the official, the official Grotti di Frantasi tourism merchandise stand and I, I walked away. <laughs> that is super weird. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So yeah, so it's mountain day today. Yeah, it's a um, it's a mountain day. It's a mountain day. I think the is you know, we've spoken before about um, the biosphere and how we've been heating it up the last couple of hundred years. Um, in the sense, since the industrial revolution uh, and our increases in technology, yes, we've actually been kind of probably been doing a bit too much and spending a bit too much energy. Um, all that energy develops heat 
because it's a second law of thermodynamics, which is okay. which is basically the idea that um, energy only goes in one direction. Uh, it's always expending. And then you go into a thing called entropy, oh. which is the whole universe is going to eventually just get cold because oh, all oh, of that oh. energy is okay. being used up. Let me pause you there. Can I pause you there? Mm-hmm. Yes. Just to drop it while you, while you just go again, because you, you can't just mm-hmm. sit on the front all the time. We've got to go through and off here a little bit. Yeah. I'll pause you there. Just to, I think I've told you this before, but in terms of the the entropy of the universe, all energy will all energy will dissipate, won't it? All every star, every sun will die, right? Exactly. And 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 when it when the last sun dies, and the last kilojoule or joule of energy has been dissipated and spent, the universe will be dead. All uh, because there's no energy in the universe any longer. Nothing can change. Because change can only be affected with energy, and if there's so dynamic system, if there's no change, there is no time. Because time is simply a measurement of change. Yeah. yeah so, so, so time stops. Okay. Now this is this is the death of everything. This is the death of the universe. Um, so it's the idea of absolute zero. It's absolute it? zero, and, 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 goes, and, yeah. and it will happen in the future. So you may be forgiven mm. for asking, well, when's this going to happen then? You know, how many more years have we got? Okay. They think, they suggest that there are more, um, there are more years before that happens than there are atoms in the universe. So quite a long time. Okay. Carry on. <laughs> Thank you, Ned. Um, so, and the thing is, second law of thermodynamics which is actually the law kind of thinks it superseded the first one, the first law, which is a prelude to that is they figured that one out during the industrial revolution when they were trying to optimize steam engines mm-hmm. and trying to, to make them, they figured, well, it's losing all this heat. Can't we capture that heat and turn that into energy as well mm-hmm. and, and make what would essentially be called a perpetual motion engine. Oh yeah. So that's the holy grail. Like, that's like alchemy. It's a it? holy grail, yeah. Yeah. isn't it? Um, and they realized after a while, it's just impossible. It's impossible because um, that heat is always going to go somewhere. And this is the idea of the second law where they realize that whatever they do, it's you can't stop it happening. And this is that idea that and, – and, and then I was thinking about this. This is where I started thinking in the car about all this was that's what we've been doing. We've been accelerating kind of all this energy we're pushing out. We're, we're increasing more heat. You look at the amount of – just the amount of stuff we have and – and it's a kind of, it's quite an elegant way of thinking of sustainability and what we're doing is just, and this is where we're saying about talking about reduction. And you see, imagine if you got to a point where cities were just, everybody was on bikes and you started to take the cars out and you started to, to really minimize everything down and, and become more efficient. And that's what we have to do because at the moment, what we're doing is we're just, we're literally pumping out so much heat with everything we do. And this is the problem. And this is why we're damaging our biosphere. So basically, it all comes back down to that thing where we've got to start minimizing. And perhaps with what's happened with the pandemic and the fact everything's shut down and it's quieter. I mean, I hardly ever see planes in the sky. There's less traffic on the road. There's less traveling. You think perhaps this is the way we have to go is we start to live closer. Why do we need cars? Mm. You know, why do we need these? And we need to start having a, a, a much more efficient 
world and life in order to stand a chance of not cooking our biosphere up and, and changing it. Not for the planet will be fine because it will just adjust, but for us, we're finely tuned to this climate and have been over millennia. Now in the space of two centuries, we're totally changing our biosphere and the planets and when people say save the planet, that's not a, the planet's fine. It's us that are going to, uh, that are in trouble yeah. because we've got too technologically advanced and we're burning too much energy. And it's this, so that, that was my, that was my drive back really. Yeah. It went from entropy to bikes and wow. a 10 kilo bike versus a 10 and a half car. Wow. Mm. Yeah. And we're just accelerating. We're just yeah, accelerating it. It's just a shame. Because, but welcome. Yeah. So, so welcome to one of my big passions. As you say, I'm quite, I'm quite invested in this. And actually for the last year, David, I've been, I've been um, co-hosting a podcast about this ah. called Streets Ahead with uh, Laura Laker and Adam Tranter. And the three of us have been discussing these very issues for the last year. So oh, have, a, have a little listen to that if you want to. Streets Ahead podcast um, in my other life. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you, no, completely. You're absolutely right. And then you just need to look at, you know, all the statistics that suggest that uh, most, car, the majority of car journeys in urban settings and in London are less than one mile. It's, I mean, yeah. it's just insanity. It's just insanity. So it's just insane. We have to we have to move to bikes. In and well, around all those sprinters, it's kind of amazing. You know, it's amazing when you're that fit. What you can do. I mean, even if you're not a sprinter, you can. Those GC riders, if they really put their 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 kind of energy into it, because so much of those sprints is positioning beforehand, which is the really hard bit. And if you've got the kind of, and so the actual kind of morphology and kind of inbuilt genetics to sprint doesn't really kick in until those final three, 400 meters, 300 meters probably. I mean, <clears throat> I, I think most of those non-sprinter big engine guys can probably just sit on wheels to fifth places and bunch of sprints. But it's just to go from fifth to first is huge. I mean, that's where it's, I've been in situations like that where you'd be there, everything's good. Then you come out of the wind with 200 meters to go and it's like hitting a brick wall. And that's when the sprinters actually engage and go. And it was just, and also for, I think even what was amazing at that point as well, and in a full blown world-class kind of sprint lead out, when we're watching on TV, you see all the sprinters getting out the saddle going, there's, there's, you know how hard it is to get out the saddle at that point in a sprint? You've already been kind of peaking out at full-blown maxed out capacity for about two minutes at that point. And everyone else is just putting their head down, just trying to hang on for dear life. And you look up and the sprinters, that's when they start. And it's just, it, it never fails to amaze me how how they do that. Because, and I guess that's the difference is you'll have those really good guys who can always sit up there, get fifth, sixth. But the difference from fifth, sixth to first, second is just night and day. It's just crazy. So I think that's what's, that's what's happening with those really strong riders at the moment. Just cruise mm. around, surf the front, as we call it, and then mm. try and avoid the wind. That's what you do. When, when you're surfing the front and sprint, you're just trying to avoid that brick wall of headwind that, uh, that is just so few people can plow through. Yeah, whenever I hear you guys talk about it, and Matt, Matt Stevens was telling me about some stuff that he remembers because Matt was not a sprinter. You know, I mean, <laughs> even less of a sprinter than than you, David. And you were quite you're a good sprinter. You had, your, you had your moments, didn't you, as a sprinter? My moments, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Matt really didn't. He was describing. He was describing. He was describing his one day out of sheer. He said. He said. What did he say? It was quite. 
funny. He said, he just finished the Tour de Romandy. And he was, he said, I was, I was going pretty well. I was a solid 49th overall. <laughs> so I was pretty chuffed, but I, but I got to the final stage, which was a bunch of sprints. And he said, uh, he said, uh, I, I just thought, you know, I've, I've had a good, I've had a good Tour de Romandy. I'm solid top 50, you know. Um, but I, I've done nothing in the race. I've not kind of been, I've not been in the race. I've just drifted, <laughs> I've drifted into that position. So on the final sprint, I, for whatever reason, he decided, he decided to give it a nudge in the sprint. <laughs> And his teammate, his teammate, his teammate, his teammate was, um, Sean Yates. And on the bus in the morning, he said, um, he said, I'm going to, I'm going to go for the sprint today. And apparently Sean Yates, Yates just stared at him as if he was insane. And, um, he, he, his target was, his target, his target was 25th. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, because there was a, because there was a, he's got 50 euros for 25th. <laughs> That's legendary. I love that. But he finished uh, 20, he finished 26th. <laughs> That's Matt Stevens' story ever. But it's the most, but it's the most full, oh, you'd have to get him to describe it. It's the most full on kind of like terrifying escapade to finish 26th, you know? Because yeah. I, I don't think, I genuinely don't think that uh, having listened to, been around you guys for, for long enough, I don't think the television pictures come close to describing what's going on in, in, nah. in, the, in those finales. It's not even, I think they do to some extent on other phases of racing. It do give you a sense of kind of being in there and what the riders might be going through, but a bunch sprint, I don't think, it, I don't think it touches the sides really. No, it doesn't. It would be amazing. I mean, I'm surprised that nobody's really shot it properly yet, or even kind of, uh, granted, it's really hard to do those things live because they've got cameras on bikes now, but they always show it like a couple of hours later and it's a, uh, just a, a front shot or a rear shot. They're not cut together. If you actually cut together, if you had like a cable drone above and stuff and went for a full on crazy production value covering of a bunch of sprint, it would be awesome because you'd have, you'd need like, as I said, cable cameras above, you'd need people posting all the different kind of shots and the noise inside there as well and the concentration and just, and I guess even then it, it's hard unless you're actually in it because this is the speed, as I was just describing there, the speed you're going at, you're at full capacity effort. And people are knocking you and, and people are kind of, you've got to stay, people are coming through and there's always a hand for that. that was, that was always the most awe inspiring thing with, with Mark Cavendish, to be honest with you, is just the way he would be. And we've spoken about this in, in the past net is, is the contrast. Everyone would always see him often explode after the line, either in happiness or rage or, <laughs> or a mixture of both. Um, <laughs> But in those, in those seconds before, right up until he crossed the finish line, he was the coolest, he is the coolest cat out there. He never gets stressed in the, in those final few kilometers. He's just darting around calm. It's almost as if he's kind of locked it all away, but it goes to show how much he has to focus and concentrate to lock it all away because the moment he crosses the finish line, kind of the door of emotions just blow open and it's, it's it, that's the Mark Cavendish everybody sees but when he's in the sprint I think he's probably one of the most respected for being the coolest cucumber in the sense that he's just like just everything's bouncing off him he's finding caps he's not panicking gaps he's not panicking and that's what the best sprinters do they just show no emotion in those in those final hundred meters or final two or three kilometers but then often, as we see it, then just comes ripping, exploding out the moment they cross the finish line. And it, you suddenly realize how much concentration it's taken 
for them to kind of stay that much in control under such high stress. Because I mean, that's, that's also the thing. You, we see them doing things like Gaviria going up against the barriers. We see them barging, barging somebody when you're at full capacity effort and kind of when the consequences are, are pretty bad, not just for you if you go down, but you're going to take down a lot of other people. That's, it's a pretty daunting prospect and it's kind of, and they don't really give a shit. You know, it's, that's the thing. It's the sprints will say the best ones just don't use their brakes. They'll just find gaps, yeah. but they also know they're going to go down. And if they yeah. go down, it's not just them. They're going to take a lot of people with them. So that's why most of us, the other kind of 98% who can't sprint, try and stay the hell out of there because you know, once they start going, it's no holds barred and they don't really care who's behind them uh, or often who's in front of them because they'll just take everyone down with them in the, in the process. So, so yeah, it's a pretty nerve wracking exercise being in a full blown world-class bunch sprint. Yeah, it doesn't, it sounds ill-advised really, um, from a health and safety perspective. It's, um, (laughs) special edition. Well, on, um, yeah. Oh, what do you think of my idea about Never Stray's Farrar? Never Stray's Farrar is very good. I mean, I don't think the problem is, I don't think Tyler would want to be involved. Oh, well, that's quite fundamental it, to its success, isn't it? I mean, Tyler's not a very media person, isn't he? Um, he's a fireman. He's a fireman now as well. Yeah, but I also, but well, for years, he's a lovely guy. For years, he, he was have, the face yeah. of transitions. Spectacles, wasn't he? Or, or that, I think that's what put him off at all, probably. Ah. Those adverts, Ich bin. That's what, so it was in like five or six different languages. And so um, <laughs> at the time, Mark Cavendish was basically bullying him. And um, so he just called him Ich bin. Where's Ich bin? <laughs> because that's what it was. Ich bin Tyler Farah. Yeah, well, it goes back, <laughs> doesn't it? It goes back to when Cav started out at T-Mobile, at Telecom, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, he just picked him. So that was it. So he spent a lot of time in Germany watching German Eurosports, where, that's right. where Tyler yeah. Farah, his advert, his transitions ad had been dubbed into German. So it's been, hi, ich bin Tyler Farah. Ich trage transitions brillen. So... That's what, so yeah, his nickname is Ichbin. He's <laughs> great. Isaac Bin. Isaac Bin. He's quite good at coming. He's quite good at coming up with nicknames, isn't he, Mark Cavendish? Oh, oh, yeah. He finds somebody's weak point, and then, he, then the good thing—he's good at it because then he never lets it go. So he just wears it into everybody. Because I mean, that's what you've got to do with a good nickname, isn't it? You, you've got to own it. Because and that's the other rule of nicknames—you can't give it to yourself like Italian cyclists do. <laughs> <laughs> no, a nickname has to be kind of bestowed upon you, doesn't it? Imposed. And imposed, actually. Yeah. Imposed upon you. Not, you can't say, oh, I'm a shark. Can everyone stop calling me a shark, please? Or, or I'm a pirate. I'm going to be a pirate. Can everyone start calling me a pirate? And it goes on, doesn't it? There's lots of them, lots of animal names as well with Italian cyclists. We should do a list later. Actually, if anybody on Twitter, if you can go through the last 20 years of Italian riders named after animals. That would be amazing. The Lion King. Yeah. Chipo. That's it. That's it. Yeah. I wonder who came, uh, yeah, who came, who comes up with all this stuff? I love that. Pelizzotti had one as well. That's so good. Can everyone start calling me the shark, please? <laughs> guys, guys, change your plan. I'm now the shark. <laughs> Is that okay? Oh, that's so good. It doesn't work It like doesn't that. work like that. <laughs> oh, calves. You paint it, go on then. Paint it on your helmet. Go on, it's fine. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Get a saddle made. 
oh god that's good oh, that's really cheered uh, yeah. me up and also um caleb McEwen's. no caleb you say so there we go caleb ewan's nickname cav's nickname for caleb ewan is cadell McEwen, isn't it <laughs> <laughs> generic australian cyclist cadell McEwen. <laughs> Oh, yeah, he's quite funny. Oh, yeah. We actually, I need to get some of the nicknames off Cav, actually, see what they are, see yeah. what the latest ones are. Ich bin, ich bin. Ich bin, ich bin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you don't think Tyler Farrow will do it, no? Well, no, but it could be like a bit like um, In Search of Farrow, in, in the sense that it would call it just because it's like never stray, never stray Farrow. Yeah. And then we could Even just, if we don't get him, just, even the journey to try and get him would be great. We could do like Zoom calls with his, the chief of his I fire station, you know? Yeah. I could have a blurred out picture of him. We can put a picture of him on the actual thing, sort of steal his image. That's not a problem. Um, and yeah. And then we can just try and get a daily call with him at the fire engine, but just never get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. We're in search of Farrah. Uh, oh, yeah. Very that's good. good. And then maybe never stay, never strays France. Never strays France. Well, we, we're contemplating more, more to come on that, isn't there? I think. Yeah. So we're thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a bit embargo. Yeah. Very much on, I keep, it's kind of haunting me actually, because I want to reread it. I wish I'd brought it with me, but have you ever read Catch 22? You must have done it. I know. I think I did like years ago though. Yeah. Year, like 20 plus years ago. Maybe. Yeah. Cause it's yes. actually, it's the kind of book you get given. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. when you're, it's a sort of rite of passage book. Yeah, like J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye, isn't it? It's one of those. Exactly, it's up there with those. And actually, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think you're ready for it. I think it's a book you need to read, maybe a little bit later in life. I reread it. I reread it a few years ago, and I actually quite want to read it now because I'm in. The, basically, the reason I'm mentioning it is because we're kind of in the landscape that that plays out in now with the the um, American bombing campaign towards the end of the second world war in Abruzzo. And I'm, I'm reading about some of the destruction here. It was, um, kind of epic actually. Um, and a nasty war that I think gets under report unre- unremembered actually in all the, um, the kind of, especially at home in the UK, the kind of, um, fixation on the Normandy landings mm. and that particular kind of arena of the, of the second world war. I think the, the war in the Italian peninsula and, on both sides, the carpet bombing of um, of Italian villages and the loss of civilian life here, um, the bombing of Pescara on the coast in in Abruzzo, and uh, yeah. and it, uh, and also, and I'm just reading a, about um, civilian massacre of Italian civilians in a in a village called Capistrello, which is in Abruzzo, um, mm. and that was carried out in June 1944 by Nazis. You know, fifth. 33 people were, were rounded up and killed as a, a, an act of reprisal, you know, totally innocent victims. Um, so it's all a bit, <clears throat> that's a bit bleak. Sorry, I didn't mean to, but it's kind of, oh, landscapes carry the scars, don't they? And um, it's another oh, thing about Grand Tours that you kind of, um, you're caught, caught you're, these moments in history are recalled to memory, aren't they? Yeah, they are. You know what, there's actually, it's funny you say that because there's a book that's on my radar, for, has been for a couple of weeks. It's the, um, latest Malcolm Gladwell book. It's called The Bomber Mafia. Um, the subtitle, A Dream, A Temptation and the Longest Night of the Second World War. And I think it's a really well-produced audio book, actually. Um, this kind of new thing that he's doing. But that's about, a little bit about what you're talking about and the fact that the powers that be in the the American Air Force were abs- and I think politically were convinced that bombers would actually 
make for a, a more ethical war. Amazing. Um, yeah. Amazing. But actually it ended up kind of, it went so far the other way. And, um, but that's why I guess it's called a dream of temptation, the longest night of the second world war, because it ended up being just poor, pretty insanely savage. What the, the bombers did yeah. to Europe and Japan. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a book called but, The Bomber Mafia by Malcolm Gladwell. I recommend it. I've started it. But I think Joseph Heller would have been Listening, a... I mean, sorry, yeah. sorry, David. I think Joseph Heller, who wrote Catch-22, who based it on his own experiences, actually, in, in the um, Mediterranean arena of combat, he, 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 he flew as a bomber... <laughs> Uh, as a bombardier in the in the in the cockpit of a you know he's a bomb dropper he's a guy who released oh, the, he? the bombs in the over Avignon and places like that in France, so he had mm. some pretty bleak experiences. But I think he would have been an excellent contributor or co-host of uh, Never Strays Far. Actually, I think it would have. I think our slightly circular, fuzzy philosophy would have quite um quite appealed to him. I, I, my favourite bit in, in one of my favourite bits in Catch Twenty Two is this whole and it's almost a detail that keeps coming up throughout the opening sort of half of the book is um i don't know if you remember but you probably don't because it's a long time ago since you read it but he keeps complaining yasarian that um in his bivouac in his in his tent at the airbase he keeps saying to his superior officer he says there's a dead body there's a dead man in my in my tent well can you can you have it removed it's horrible to sleep with a dead man in my tent why did you put a dead man in my tent there is a there is a dead man in my tent he says over and over again and this commanding officer just says that's impossible and he says well, I, I i see it with my eyes every day there is a dead man in my tent and the commanding officer just no it's actually impossible a dead man cannot be <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, but there is, but there is one. No, there isn't. <laughs> I can remember it being pretty funny, like just darkly funny the whole way through. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the a, whole the whole premise of you know only a yeah. sane man would would try to fake insanity. <laughs> Boom! That's your catch twenty two, isn't it? You know, to get out of to get out of dying. It's so good. I want to get. I want to not die. And in order not to die, I've got to fake my insanity, which is the sanest thing you could possibly do. You're stuck, mate. It's the human condition, right there. I, I do recommend oh, it. It's God. a brilliant book. Uh, yeah, it's a brilliant Very book. Good. Um. um Um, dreamy. That'd be pretty cool. So, but yeah. no, before we leave the subject of Remco alone, David, because you're such a unique prospect, I thought that, um, Philip made a really interesting point and one that I hadn't considered before, uh, when he, uh, talked to me about the fact, the importance of the fact that Remco comes from Brussels. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't realize this. I was so interested when I heard that. It's really interesting. So uh, here's, here's a little clip of, um, uh, Philip talking about that subject. I think he's f really famous, not only in Belgium, but especially in Belgium, because also he's like a really nice guy. You know, he speaks really good French, speaks, uh, Flemish, speaks English. So for his age, he's really impressive, you know, and, uh, he's also from Brussels, which is like, like, okay, he's like from the Flemish part, but Brussels is like kind of, neutral you know so it's like Eddie Max you know it was the same yeah. you know so when you are from the area of Brussels like yeah yeah 
like south of Belgium say that you are like from them and, and, and north says you're from them. So <laughs> you're always there in the middle, you know. So you're, you have a special place in the heart of Belgium. So that's cool in so many ways, David. Like the fact that he kind of bridges that this divide mm. and, and straddles the two cultures. Um, but also cool. What's so cool about that as well is that it puts him it puts him in the same geographical, historical, cultural place as Eddie Merckx, doesn't it? You know, yeah. Just, just I know that's mega. I didn't. I mean, I know that it's for such a small small country as Belgium is. Belgium is that there is such strong affiliations to those regions and and those zones. I mean, do you think it's just Flemish or Wallonie? But actually, I didn't realise that Brussels kind of held that sort of capital status of bridging the two, which is which is pretty cool because I guess either the cyclists normally they either come from deep Flanders yeah. or Wallonie. Yeah. So it's pretty rare for them to come out of Brussels. Yeah. Which, which kind of it's like uh, it's like Game of Thrones. It sort of brings the country together. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's it's largely Brussels is largely French speaking, but um, mm. but it does have a kind of an, a, an element of. And it's incredibly important. So I hadn't realised that um, the Belgian state, which is kind of, uh, uh, you know, the kingdom initially in the state was created in 1830. Um, and a little bit like so many other European states, it's deeply artificial in terms of kind of trying to accommodate these two culturally kind of completely different tribes, if you like. Um, and then there's a huge economic kind of imbalance. But... I hadn't realised that um, after the Second World War, uh, everything kind of changed during the rebuilding process of the 1950s, etc. That um, the mining industry, that obviously, if you think about Liège and Namur and places like that in Wallonie, that had made them prosperous um, and actually richer than the agricultural Flanders, um, started to collapse and and their economy in Wallonie started to tank um, relative to to, uh, Flanders, which actually started to boom and become industrial and uh, and actually develop at a much faster rate. And so everything kind of flipped on its head because prior to that, the Flemish in Belgium had been, you know, very much oppressed, actually. I mean, Dutch wasn't recognised as a language, uh, official language in in the Belgian state until really late on. Um, So it's not like we kind of like joke about it a bit in cycling you know all this this rivalry between the Ardennes classics and the, you know Flanders and Flanders and Wallonie it's, and it's kind of but actually it's kind of every now and again it's a tinderbox every now and again it does flare up um, and in the 1960s it was you know borderline kind of civil unrest um, in in uh, in Belgium, and it was at that point that um, they actually drew borders where there had been no borders previously, and Belgium was divided, partitioned with regional a degree of regional autonomy into four cantons. Um, one is really really tiny, and it's right hard up to the east of the country, and uh, it's for the very small German-speaking population uh, there. We can kind of ignore them. They don't really figure in the grand scheme of things. The other is Wallonie, which is the south. You know, if you draw a line across from Brussels, Wallonie is, 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 is south of that line, and then the other one is Flanders, north of it. And then the fourth one is Brussels. It sits right in the middle at the core, like the core of an apple. So Brussels is its own canton. Um, so I hadn't really ever sat down and kind of looked at the structure of, of Belgium Facts. I didn't know that either. A few facts, yeah. And the other thing about Philippe Gilbert that is really cool is the fact that he's a rare 
a relatively rare uh, Wallon champion, isn't he? C- compared to all the, yeah, you know, he like, is. <clears throat> you know the, the absolute, absolute kind of uh, absolute plethora of contemporary uh, great Flemish riders, and uh, so he's a bit of an anomaly. Yeah. <laughs> and that was actually exemplified by his early career, because instead of going to to Lotto and Quick Step or whatever it was called back then, um, <clears throat> he he went to France de Jour. FDJ. So he went to a French team because he was actually for French speaking, French speaking number one before Flamel. So it's, um, and I guess show how his career kind of shaped like that because actually he really did kind of treat himself more as a, as more comfortable in the French environment than he was the, the Flandrian. So it's, um, so, so, so yeah, he's a pretty interesting dude, Phil Gilbert, because he does, he does understand. Because it's, and I think as well, <clears throat> can't underestimate there is quite a, it's not just a rivalry. There's a, there's a bit of the, the Flandrian riders look down a bit on the Wallen riders. So it's, um, the fact that he broke free of that and then ended up crushing and even winning Tour of Flanders as a Wallon is pretty cool because uh, it wouldn't have been so easy for him when he's younger yeah. dealing with all the Flandrians as a, as a Wallon. <laughs> yeah. And he did it in the Belgian national champions jersey as well, didn't he? That's quite. That was proper. That was quite a moment. Yeah, yeah. He was very funny. If he was very funny also about the um the the Belgian attack in Paris Nice. Tell oh, yeah, about that. Because it? he. he uh, it's completely planned. So, but um, so Oliver Narsen orchestrated it. I think it's quite well known now, isn't it? That the whole idea came from Oliver Narsen. But and they have done it before, and they've done it at the Tour de France. But this was the first time that Philippe Gilbert was included. <laughs> so I was really, I so I was really, I was really pissed off. I've never been invited, and um, Oliver Narsen for all these reasons that you just outlined. And Narsen, and Narsen yeah. said, "Do you want to come this time?" And he went, "Thank you, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, guys." But, um, oh wow! But it didn't work. And he he said, and he's he's quite cross actually. He said, "One of these days we'll do it again, and it will go to the line." He's quite serious about it. Like we're going to mm. do this, and it's going to go to the line one day. <laughs> Um, You've got to get, yeah, because it's like, I mean, we've spoken about that before, where <clears throat> there was a Giro in 83 or 84 when Guimard had his team every day, I think it was Renault back then, uh, attack, uh, let's do the sprint intermediate, uh, and then just kept doing it to the point, it was kind of nonsensical, and they go so hard, <clears throat> that teams, the peloton ended up just letting them go, convinced, and they'd, then they'd slow up and come back. They kept doing it until one day where Guimard planned for them to just carry on and go all the way to the finish line and they did and it worked but it's so you kind of you don't that doesn't work if you do it two or three times you need to do it four or five times until you wear people down and then eventually you go and it's like no they've done it <laughs> so yeah He's, yeah he said on that occasion in Paris Nice actually he was quite cross because he said to, it was the current quick step team car that told him to come back like it was uh, it was yeah it's the quick step and you would go oh guys you know but um <laughs> <laughs> the coolest yeah, thing. So but good. before we leave the Wallen Flemish thing behind us, David, I, I just want to play a bit of music at this point. So I'm going to float in this music now. You know how I like Jack Brell? I know how you love Jack Brell. I, Marik, Marik, je t'aimais tant entre les tours de Bruges et Gand. First thing I did when the Tour de France, when we all arrived in Brussels, seems like a lifetime ago, doesn't it, for the start in 2019. The first thing I did when we arrived a few days before before the race was not go and do any team hotels or do any research about the Tour de France. I actually went to seek out the statue of Jacques Brel in the middle of Brussels and visit the Jacques Brel Museum. 
mijn platteland, mijn Vlaanderen land, Marieke, Marieke, le ciel flamand, couleur des tours, de Bruges et Gans. This is my favourite song, actually, the one that's playing at the moment. Jack, uh, this is this is called Marik, and the reason that I love this song so much is because he sings equal, equal measures of Flemish and French. Um, beautiful, beautiful lyrics, actually. I mean, if you can understand a little bit of it, he's actually singing about um, he's, he's singing about uh, Flanders. So that the, the words roughly translated, he sings in French. He says, "I, Marik, Marik." I loved you so much between the towers of Bruges and Ghent. Marika, Marika, long time ago, between the towers of Bruges and Ghent. And then he flips to Dutch and he sings, Without love, warm love, the wind is blowing, the stupid wind. Without love, warm love, weeps the sea, the grey sea. Without love, warm love, does the light suffer the dark light and scours the sand over my country, my country, my Flandrian country. Um, and he, but the, the, the amazing thing about Jack Brown is both, both he's he's Remco, he's Remco. That's what I'm trying to say, and he's Eddie because he's somebody who all Belgians can universally admire, you know, um, which is pretty remarkable because he spent most of his life in Paris. Um, and uh, was really quite insulting about the country that he loved, hated, loved, hated, you know, his home country of Belgium. In fact, he described Belgians as being Nazis during the wars and Catholics in between. <laughs> and, and yet they're, they're immensely proud of him. And uh, occasionally, occasionally he'd issue like a, a call to arms to unify the country. And bear in mind, he was, you know, all his great songwriting was in the 1950s and 60s. He said, if I were king of Belgium, I would send all the Flemings to Wallonia and all the Walloons to Flanders for six months, like military service. They would live with a family and that would solve all our ethnic and linguistic problems very fast because everybody's tooth aches in the same way and everybody loves their mother. Everybody loves or hates spinach. And those are the things that really count. was the uh, gravel and more importantly how's the form because I encountered a very uh, tired and I'd say a little bit unexcited Ned late last night when you were handing over mm. all pod duties to me um, well le- yeah how are let you me now? start I got, I got, I'm still in the problem my alarm when he went off about five minutes ago just just had time to plug in boil a kettle and also just assimilate the dream that I've woken up from when my alarm went off because it's borderline. You know how a dream is so powerful that it can kind of set you up in the wrong way for the rest of the day until you kind of shed, oh, yeah. shed well, the skin of the dream. It infiltrates your subconscious, isn't it? It's like, it's, that's, that's deep what's going on when you have a dream and it's, it's, it's there for a reason. What was the dream about? I was in... It was a kind of late afternoon and I was standing by an oak tree uh, with grass up to my knee, sort of knee height, looking down at, at, I mean, it was vaguely, the landscape was kind of Umbrian, Abruzzan, Tuscan, kind of rolling hillside. 
it was quite a serene scene actually when an orange a small kind of kid size orange football came flying through the air and sort of landed at my feet and I looked down and it was uh, it was in the undergrowth and I kind of picked it up and um, I wanted and then I saw in the distance who had kicked it my way and I vaguely recognised them and I kind of felt innately in the dream like I knew them pretty well and I wanted to uh, punt it back to them but I feared for my footballing skills because I didn't want to miss, you know, miss kick or kind of like for it to go off, go off my shin and kind of, you know, I wanted it to be a good, so instead I decided to carry it back to the people who'd who'd kicked it my way. Safety, that's a nice one. So just protecting your, your dignity. Your dignity. Yeah. Yeah. I, I reached, I reached the people who kicked it to me and, um, I recognised there were four of them and they were sitting around a, uh, no, three of them. And they were sitting around a little upturned crate where they had a plate of kind of charcuterie and prosciutto and formaggio laid out. And um, what, what became very clear was they had a recording device on the table. And um, uh, the closer I got, the more I realised that the three people were Lionel Burney, Daniel Freeb. And Richard Moore from the cycling podcast, David, and they ushered me. They ushered me to take my place on the, a spare seat and in front of a, a spare microphone oh, that wow. they had you, at their table. You got invited onto the cycling podcast, seemingly, yeah. And Richard uh, turned to me and he said, um, "Hey, Ned, how are you finding the the Giro?" And I couldn't, couldn't think of anything to say. <laughs> Were you still holding their orange football? I was holding their orange football and I literally couldn't think of anything to say. So oh, I kind Ned. of defaulted. I got super nervous and I defaulted. To, I just said, I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant. And do you know what? Just, it's just they a platitude. Me, exactly. They all looked at me uh, kind of uh, with a mixture of s- s- disappointment and almost disdain at my answer. <laughs> So I hastily started to qualify that I didn't think this is literally the end of the dream. I hastily started to qualify my, 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 my my assessment of the Giro. And and I I was in the middle of saying, well, maybe not five stars, but four and a half when the alarm went off. Oh, Ned, that's terrible. That's when the Um, alarm went off. I'm sorry. That's, um, this rings without digging too deep into it in pop psychological terms. Like you suffering a mild case of imposter syndrome. I can't. I'd like to be able to disagree with you. But when I think about the grammar of the dream and, and the way it's kind of played out, I think it's the only possible interpretation. And what, what, see, and the reason it's got me off to quite a bad start today is because I think it, I, th- I think there's something truth in it. <laughs> Maybe we need to. Maybe it's the fact we sponsor our own podcasts ourselves and and just do it kind of randomly. I mean, maybe self sponsorship is just. It's it's, not. It's not a very good business model, is it? It's not a very good business model. I mean, but yeah, maybe we need some outside um, affirmation. Well, I mean, the listeners give us that. We've got good listenerships. It's it's all right, Ned. I think you're really good at this. (laughs) 
I think <laughs> I think you're doing really well. And, okay. and I think so. perhaps any listeners, please just just for Ned, just go on Twitter <laughs> and send him good messages about how he is a good podcaster, and that yeah. and that just because we sponsor this ourselves, and this is for me and Ned, we're not faking it. We we don't think we're imposters. I think we're I think we're the real deal, Ned. I think granted we're still a little bit like a- on the fringe of it all, but we're, yeah. we're, we've got to start somewhere. Okay. Okay. So should we get back to it? All right. I might. I might see if there's a sports shop in, in town and try and get a little orange football to carry around with me in the back of the car. Maybe that's what, that just, would be a nice little kind of, just a, a nice little, little reminder, just a little totem. Yeah, that means you've externalised it. You should nice. do that. Which means take ownership of it. Take ownership. And you know what? Then go and find, get when you get to outside this morning, go and find that ball, go and find yep. a nice wall and just stand there and kick it repeatedly against the wall. <laughs> over and over and over again. <laughs> You t- you show that orange football who's boss, and you know what? Yeah. It doesn't matter if it hits target every time, because sometimes yeah. you're going to miss. So, just, <laughs> so don't use your hands. Don't pick it up and throw it. Kick that ball, no. kick, and kick you ball. kick it over and over again until you get good. <laughs> don't, don't stop until you can do it properly. Uh, um, anyway, did you? So I, yeah, did I you? Missed, the, did I, you, I missed the race, and I. I oh no! Uh, no, I, I, and it, yeah, oh, no. I had. I had a call. Oh, I was so pumped up with hope. I then know, could, I, I, And then I, I ask you about the greatest stage in the tour so far, in the Giro so far, and you just didn't watch it. Well, oh, how's this going to work? Think that I wasn't invited in the cycling podcast to talk about it. But, um, oh, but no, it was that right reason. You know I, I had calls now. I was on a call to an American university and I was then on a call, had my board call for chapter three. So no, I had no. to be all grown up. Well, do you know yeah. anything? I mean, can you yes, I can see in the distance, I can see the Alps suddenly, like the Pyrenees do in the southwest of France, just rising up mm. out of this flat plain. Um, really impressive, actually. But uh, we don't go near them today. I'm at the finish line, obviously. And it's just, I mean, it's the flattest parkour in world racing. And I include the UAE tour in that. I mean, it's just... Seriously. It's just incre- it's incredibly flat. And I was th- it got me thinking about flat parts of Europe and trying to, I was that bored on the transfer yesterday. I was trying to sort of tick, <laughs> mentally tick them off all the really flat parts of Europe. And, and I thought, well, in the UK, you've got, what you got, you got Norfolk, the Norfolk, Norfolk Broads, is very got, flat. Isn't it? I've never been there. You got, you've never been to Norfolk. I don't think so. No. Have you been to Devon? Yes. Have you been to, have you ever been to Wales? I, 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 did I win the tour, junior tour of Wales? I think I, I might know. have won the junior, junior tour of Wales. Okay, well, we second. could play this game for a while, just randomly naming parts yeah. of the year. I have been Wales. I have been, been Cornwall, um, Yorkshire. Um, <laughs> you've definitely been to Yorkshire. I've um, seen you in Yorkshire. Oh yeah, yeah, you have. I've been to quite a lot of places, <laughs> Ned. But you've never been to Norfolk? Never been to Norfolk. I've had no reason to go to Norfolk. Why would I go to Norfolk? Oh no, but that's not bad. I'm not criticizing Norfolk, but genuinely I've had what? no reason to go to Norfolk. There's no bike races there. There's no, I don't have any, um, friends there. Um, and maybe <laughs> well, I do you don't now, or maybe I do. Yeah. I just, um, just never met them. Do you know what a cool thing that I regularly remember? Have you ever read any 
Graham Swift. Water, have you I read Waterland? Yeah, I love Graham Swift. Graham? I read those books when I was younger. Yeah. I, Waterla- is it Waterland? Uh, about set in the Norfolk Roads. I don't. That tale of kind of... That, Graham that, Swift, uh, here it is. Tale of that, Waterland, right here. There you go. What's the, oh, it's a beautiful book. What's the synopsis of that? The synopsis. A, the family growing up in a lock keeper's house or something by the side of a canal. Yeah, it's not, uh, is that right? it's not got a um, synopsis on it. It's just got oh, quotes. Is it not? But on the back it says, uh, positively Faulknerian in its concentration on murder, incest, guilt, and insanity. The brooding sense of place is a shaping force in the novel's action is as powerful as Hardy's Wessex or Dickens's London. It's yeah. set in the Fens. Mm. The, no, the Norfolk Broads, the Fens. I don't know quite, uh, I don't know the difference. But anyway, super flat part of the world. And, um, and I think, I, I think it's a long time since I read that book, but I seem to remember a detail from that book that has stuck with me that, um, I think it's from that book. The, the reason that they know, you know, like when you sometimes see animations, David, m- maps of, um, how, uh, Africa and South America, which used to be one landmass, slowly drifted apart and the Atlantic Ocean was formed. Yes. You know, o- over, over millennia, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, also, equally, the British Isles separated from mainland Europe, didn't they? And kind of drifted out into the Atlantic and formed the North Sea. And if you kind of tilt, you tilt the British Isles back onto the Dutch coast and the Danish coast, it kind of fits. Yeah. Yeah. And one of, one of the bits of evidence that scientists had, I think I'm right in saying, for knowing that that happened in history, that it was one landmass, hmm. is, is the River Ouse, which flows through, I think, flows out in Kings Lynn or something, flows through Norfolk, oh. um, around, through East Anglia, used to be, uh, they've proven a tributary to the River Rhine. Seriously? That's Yeah, mad. and the reason they know that is because a very specific species of eel, uh, which are eels are some of the oldest animals on the planet, aren't they? Yeah, and, like crocodiles uh, and stuff. And so... Yeah, and these and these eels are only found in the River Ouse and in certain other tributaries of the Rhine. So they used to be used to be the same sort of family, you know, when it was all one landmass. How cool good. is that? That's very really cool. Also, I just remembered I've watched. So remember the Finley Pretzel film they did of me, Time Trial. So director of, director of photography in that Martin Radish um, wrote and directed a film called Norfolk, which I actually saw at the cinema. It's very good, and what's that's it, what's it about. It's about. Uh, it's about Norfolk. It's um, <laughs> no, it's very set in Norfolk. Um, here you go. Set in Norfolk amidst an idyllic, brooding landscape, an innocent teenage boy and his battle-weary father live a simple life. Days are spent hunting, fishing, and daydreaming. Out of nowhere, disrupting this tranquility, a mysterious, intense figure gives the green light for the father to complete one last mission. He is a mercenary, hired to assassinate a group of revolutionaries holed up in a remote, disused civil what? service outpost. outpost. What? A mission that's, that threatens that's to a, destroy that's not a just a twist isn't it? oh yeah it's really good and it's um it's super gets actually twists right gets super twisted and but it's very north fucking north fucking north fucking fucking excuse the language that was yeah that wasn't a, actually meant to happen um yeah. north fucking would that be a word north fucking north folkish north folkish yeah Folk-ish. it's very marshy and flat so yeah there you go i'll, yeah. I'll put it in the show notes um, and of course Alan Partridge, isn't it? North Norfolk Digital well, and all that. Yeah, he's the best. He's the best. He's the um, best. Um, so there. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's it. Uh... 
Hello, David. Hey, good good. Time, my dog. Ah, uh, hello, dog. Oh, talking yeah. of which, well, in the ballpark, I've just had another dream as the alarm went oh, off. Yeah. Um, just deal with it quickly because we've got the race to talk about, which is very good. And also, I don't really understand this dream, but I don't know if you, I don't know if you've got any sort of thoughts about it. It started with me inside this building talking to a very tall cameraman I know who works, uh, who, who works on the, um, ITV's darts coverage and does the big close up, massive close ups of like the triple, triple 20, triple 20 and the bullseye and all that sort of thing. And um, he's a triathlete. And he said to me, he said to me, those glasses you're wearing, they're cheap and nasty, aren't they? And I said, yeah, but I travel around, they'll get bashed and, you know, they're battered and all this sort of thing. He says, take them off, take them off, show me. And I did. And I realized they were filthy, which is why I couldn't see properly. Right. And, mm. and he said, take them outside into the sun and I'll clean them. And you put the glasses back on. You see what a difference it makes. And we, we both stepped outside and he cleaned my glasses. I put them back on. And all of a sudden we were looking out over the Mediterranean and he was making this point about um, perspective to me. And he was saying, he was saying that the, uh, the surface of the sun is in, in fact um, incredibly, is rippled with flames and huge towers of escaping gas and it's incredibly dynamic. But if you're far enough away from it, it looks completely round. And I went, you're right, you're right. I suppose if you magnified a snooker ball, it would have lo lots of little dump bumps and lumps on it. But actually, if we stand far enough away, it looks perfectly round. And then I pointed out at the horizon and I said, and I said, look at that, look at the horizon. It's completely flat. At hmm. which point, Simon Brotherton, BBC's cycling commentator, suddenly appeared from nowhere and said, oh, right, are you a flat earther? Oh, wow. And then I okay. woke up. Okay, that's an interesting one, Ned. I mean, Good luck with that, David. Well, no, I think it's something interesting about this, is the fact that what was the building like you were in? Indes indescribable it was no it, it looked it like was. i'd picked up where i'd left off in um the koenig quick steps so the polytechnic canteen. still so it was again it was this it was this yeah it was this institution so seat of learning seat of learning so you're in a seat of learning were there windows no no hmm. not until we stepped outside and then saw this big horizon this vista see, see the way you describe it first makes me think almost like it's a it's an artificial womb and you've, um, you're inside and that's your world and <clears throat> you don't know anything different. You're still in there. You're a little bit lost. And so this angelic figure of stature, um, the cameraman, yep. the cameraman, almost <coughs> in a, in a sort of, I'd say fraternal father-like way wants to, Paternal, to help yeah. you. Um, wow, this is, it's to sort of, it's to break you out of there and say, look, you don't need to be here, Ned. There's more out there. You don't need to keep looking inside yourself. So it takes you outside and, and suddenly you reveal that you've been leading a myopic life and confined oh. within this, this hunt to know more. And yet actually it's all out there. If you go outside and just open your eyes and see for yourself. But even out there, once it's all revealed to you, you're still going to have to deal with people accusing you of flat earth, being a flat <laughs> earther. And so if you, you might take that a little bit too hardly. And if you do, if 
the the paternal cameraman isn't there, you might your glasses might instantly get dirty again cloud and up, you'll cloud just up. cloud up and you'll disappear back into the building because once again you feel like you're an imposter out there in the big again? world yeah i think it's just a, it's another twist in the imposter syndrome ned yeah Every i think day. Pro- I, I think you might find yourself back in that seat of learning in our next stream as well <clears throat> but oh, the good thing is your subconscious is trying to break you free of it okay mm. so yeah I- Something like that. Okay. But just I'm, keep, keep I'm, plugging yeah. away. There's, there's progress being made here, Ned. Thanks very much, David. I feel yeah. better already. Yeah. Good. So what did I miss in the, the first part of the race before I started hitting the... Oh, Astana. The Astana Movistarred themselves. Big time. Oh, a lovely classic. It's the order. Hit out so, too hard. There was a category... Geo can wait. Any dreams, Ned? Yes. Oh, what? Really? Well, I went to bed last night thinking, am I going to dream? Because mm. how often do you have dreams? Well, I mean, every, every, everyone dreams every night, mm. don't they? Yeah. But, but it's not often that you wake up and remember them. No, it's not. It's, it's true. Because they tend to, it's like REM sleep, isn't it? So you kind of dream and fall back asleep. We get into light sleep and forget about it. But if you get it just at the right moment, like you are, because you're having this constant early wake up, you're waking up and you're not going back to sleep. So it's straight Boom. out of straight out of REM into life. Boom. So that's exactly right. So the alarm's waking me up every morning and every morning, that's four mornings in a row, it's interrupted. It's a live transmission of a dream. It's kind of, um, and because I know that this is important therapy for me and that we're engaged in a process here, I make a, I make a real effort instantly to, to kind of recall it or at least as much of it as I can hold on to it so that I can recount it to that's, you. That's very useful, right. Ned. Well done. This is a little bit fragmented and it's quite short. Okay. You'll be glad to hear. <laughs> but, but I was, the dream was this, this morning, David. I was commentating on a stage of the Tour de France. <laughs> no, the, uh, the Giro, the Giro. And um, there were repeated crashes and they were nasty kind of high speed little affairs, which actually relates quite, uh, quite closely to what we saw yesterday in the, in the actual race. And not only that, so it was quite interrupted the coverage constantly because the camera was going back to see riders on the deck. But also I was, distracted by an information screen that was displaying the latest standings. This is absolutely true, I swear to God, in the fighting spirit competition that we were discussing yesterday with, that Dries de Bont is reading, hmm. it was, is leading. But the information was suggesting that AG2R's Clément Champoussin was actually leading that competition on two points. A couple of things were baffling about that. One, why two points? Like, I mean, Dries de Bond has got about 46 or something, which made me think, I don't understand everything that I explained to you yesterday. I don't understand. Mm. You know, I've clearly got the scoring system wrong. And two, Clément Champoussin abandoned the Giro about a week ago. Oh dear. Right. So this really, this was really baffling me and distracting me. And then another crash went down. And this time I picked out Gino Meda, who'd, already crashed in the dream and clearly broken his or fractured his right wrist. And he, I saw in this crash that he'd gone down again on his right wrist and you could hear the kind of screams of pain. At this point in my ear, 
and you'll be you, you're aware of this because you know what you know mm-hmm. the director's voice sounds like in your ear. Um, I was I was urged by our producer to bring in expert commentary from my co-commentator, right? Who turned out not to be you, mm-hmm. but instead, in a really surprising plot twist, my co-commentator turned out to be my goddaughter. Oh dear. Um, my my goddaughter has a. In, in real life, not in the dream world, had a brief association with the Tour de France and ITV's coverage in 2007 when she was in her early 20s, I guess. Um, I think she just finished university and I got her a job making tea and working as a runner on the production. Okay. But that's 14 years ago. And subsequently, she's got a family. And just uh, uh, quite recently, she had she um, had a second child. So as we're just testing the line, and before we're on air, I said, "Hello there, how's it going? How's the how's the little one?" And she said, "Yeah." And then she sounded quite terse and impatient. She went, "Yeah, yeah, fine." Mm. And I said, "Can you send some more pictures through onto the family WhatsApp?" And she goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And then she said, "But let's do this sound test first and started counting. You know, mm. five, four, three, like that, as if she was like." in control of the whole broadcast and actually just wanted to talk about uh, the race that was in progress and left me feeling rather foolish and inadequate because I was just talking about sort of family and fluffy stuff. And then the alarm went off and I woke up and now I'm talking to you. Okay, Ned. This one, uh, perhaps... It's a little bit easier than most, maybe. Than, than yesterday's I, fear partic- might, I fear it might be. Than yesterday's, perhaps, especially. Um, I think it's, it's clear. Did you feel, did you wake up panicked? Um, were you in a state of panic? No, I wouldn't say panic, but I was, more than the other dreams, I was really unsettled. Unsettled. Okay. Well, it seems that you're in a familiar situation in the sense you're there every day. It's strange. It's the first time you've dreamt about the commentary box. I wonder what's causing that. I mean, I think yesterday was a strange day with multiple crashes at the beginning, um, which I think did put everybody off slightly. But I think the fact that you were dealing with that, which we know as a, I know as a commentator is a stressful situation because you're trying to stay up to date in the race. Then you've got the screen that is, uh, that is showing the wrong information. Um, although you don't know that because the screen is supposed to be right and that's what you're supposed to convey. So yep. there's a, that's a double whammy. So what you do in that situation, you will lean on the, the color talent next to you. Exactly. That's your, uh, uh, your reliance, your, your pause in the storm is that, that expert next to you. Uh, I am commonly in that seat. Um, I'm sorry I wasn't there yep. in the dream net to help you. So the, your, your daughter being, your goddaughter being there obviously is a worst case scenario because all of a sudden you're on your own. <laughs> you're very much on your own. <laughs> much of this dreams, it's almost your own way of having a falling dream, which often reflect feelings of inadequacy or a sense that your life is out of control. Uh, this is uh, dealing with your stresses. It, what's stressing you at the moment is probably something you should think about. I mean, is this is the race itself stressing you, Ned? Is it just getting into third week syndrome? Partly, but it may also be that being told 
every morning, quite early in the morning, that I'm suffering from imposter syndrome. Well, I was going to conclude that this, once again, feels much it's like imposter syndrome. <laughs> because it feels like... I'm my confidence. <laughs> So you're saying that therapy is becoming counter-reactive, counter-productive. I think it's an area that we need to explore a little bit, David. Maybe. But it is, um, um, well, we'll leave it there for today and just, we'll consider it a falling dream rather than an imposter, yeah. regards imposter syndrome. It's just you feeling it inadequate rather okay. than like an imposter. Does that help? It, it, it does. But I mean, I, I like to think of this therapy as a, in a way a two-way process. So it's a dialogue mm-hmm. and perhaps, I don't know, perhaps you could, uh, you could, your takeaway from today could be the messaging that you're sending me on a daily basis from whether or not. Uh, <laughs> it's whether a, or not. <laughs> okay. Well, why don't, um, I'm just doing with what I, what I, just working with what I get here. Ned, and the, That's also true. The point is, I have to be honest, uh, otherwise this doesn't work. And you have to be honest with yourself. This is your subconscious knocking uh, knocking on your conscious, trying to tell you something. You need to, let's start looking maybe into um, ways to fix the imposter syndrome and these feelings of inadequacy. Um, okay. Perhaps it's time for us already so quickly into therapy to start looking at a, a, a positive actions to be taken going forward. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, let's talk about the race. There you go, let's do that. Yeah. How good he is at the moment, Egan. But before we carry yeah. on, uh, Matt, just so you're aware, we, there's a little routine that we go through because it's all very early morning. And strangely or not, Ned seems to be, um, well, not only having dreams every single morning just before he wakes up, but sharing them. Remembering them. Sharing and them. sharing them. Remembering yes. and sharing. Ned, go ahead. It's your time. I'm, I'm almost hesitant to recount this dream today because I'm so perplexed by the way my unconscious is working now with, as you say, kind of ferocious, ferocious regularity. Every morning at around about 6.30, 6, 6 o'clock, I am woken from a dream. And today I didn't set my alarm because it was a rest day. That's why we're recording a little bit later. But I woke up anyway, dead early. And I woke up from a dream that made me laugh out loud. So instead of the, instead of the alarm waking me up, the dream, as you will discover, literally woke me up because I was, because I laughed out loud and woke myself up. Right. Um, and the fact that it's being reduced to this narrow sphere of experience is just, it's become extraordinary. So I never normally dream about cycling, right? Or, or work in commentary and cycling. And, and, but I am now increasingly, like major figures in world road racing are popping up with, with, with increasing frequency in my dreams. So last night I had this dream that I was in a pub garden somewhere in the back garden of a pub. It's, vaguely related to my childhood. And it had a few kind of, um, it was a, a little bit of a playground set up. So there was like a little slide and various different bits and pieces like that. And I start, I suddenly got, I became aware that both, both Bora Hansgrohe leaders, Emmanuel Buchmann and Peter Sagan were having a running race around the obstacle course in this pub garden. Right. And I thought, uh, it looks, looks like they're having quite a lot of fun. Um, they were both also pushing 
little pushchairs with small children that I took to be their kids around this obstacle course, jumping up, using Peter Sagan, using a lot of skills, right? They weren't on their bikes, they're just running around. And I thought, I wonder if they'd mind if I join in. Oh, no. So I joined in for a bit, but um, I was kind of holding back because a bit like, imagine a member of the general public see some pros out training on the roads and they think, I'll just get on the wheels for a bit. You kind of like, you're slightly thrilled that you're doing it, but you're also conscious that you don't want to, you know, get in the way or kind of infiltrate their private space at all. Um, so that's what I was doing in this pub garden obstacle course with Emmanuel Buchmann, Peter Sagan and their children, right? And I saw ahead, Peter Sagan take this right-hand corner on what now appeared to be a bit of a helter-skelter. And Emmanuel Bu- and he cut up Emmanuel Buchmann and he nearly stamped on Emmanuel Buchmann's child's head, right, by mistake. Hey. At which point I thought, whoa, and I backed off because I saw the jeopardy in this. Mm-hmm. And I walked back to David where you were sitting. Oh, I've made it in, into the dream. Yeah, for the first time. Nice. In a gu- in a in a quite wobbly plastic garden chair that came from B&Q or Homebase or something. And you looked at me and said, so have you got a dream? And I thought about it and I thought, well, I could tell him about Emmanuel Buchmann and Peter Sagan and what's just happened. But, but I can't really, because that's not a dream. That's real. That's just been happening. So I can't pretend that was a dream. So that this is meta. So I got really, I got really worried about that, quite panicky, and I reached down and I picked up an American football, right? So an, an oval-shaped American football, which I then punted playfully towards you, and it smacked you really hard on the side of the face, <laughs> and I woke up. Okay. <clears throat> interesting right so and that i swear to god verbatim is my dream Ah. over to you any thoughts on that matt before i give a little bit of a attempt well i mean you two guys have clearly got some issues haven't you i'm more worried about peter sagan i mean why would peter sag why peter sagan and buchman then Bob. Yeah, why Buchmann? He, I must well, admit, Buchmann. You, he, you always talk about Buchmann. He's he's ghosted his way yeah. into your dream now. Well, he was kind of well, ghosting his way around, around the obstacle course as even well. There, even there, even well, there, he was meant to excel. No, he was and, just, and he's abandoned now. He's abandoned yeah. the race. So I think you feel abandoned. You feel you feel that so through some sort of proxy, his child needs to be stamped to death. <laughs> Because he's abandoned the Giro and abandoned you. He's left you. Oh, that's... I mean, that's <clears throat> you've been yeah. such a good supporter to him, Ned. I think that's what you feel. There's one thing we should probably go back to. Yeah. <clears throat> is the, is the, uh, the pub garden. Now, is this a pub from your childhood or something just familiar? It, it, no, it's quite... It's based on the, um, the Black Horse in Hampshire in the village where I grew up, actually. Very good. Now, did you feel like you were, because it's a bit odd, there's two fathers pushing their children around and you're there on your own trying to join in. Now, did you feel more like a child or an adult? That's a great question. I think I felt a bit embarrassed and I, um, 
the, a bit that the whole thing, the whole enterprise was a bit beneath us, all of us. That, <laughs> it yeah. was a bit humiliating. <laughs> what? Okay. But it's fun. But the other thing, it was quite fun. I remember being quite thrilled okay. by it. Well, you know, you know. I think there, there probably was your inner child. And um, the thing is, dreams of childhood may reflect feelings about being inexperienced with new situations. <laughs> <laughs> it could have, you know, so I mean, it, I there is where, a sense I can of, see where this is heading. I, I can see where I this think is heading. Being inexperienced, I mean, this is a concern yeah. of yours, and I think once again, you've joined in with something that clearly it's it's you're imposing <laughs> on that situation, and I think you, you recognised it the moment you backed off when you saw Sargon about to step on Buchanan's child's head, you realized that you were an imposter. And then you yeah. came back and you realized I was sitting there and that was when you had to face the reality. I think you're getting closer to accepting this now. But the problem was you then, even though what, what's a little bit concerning is even though you knew this wasn't a dream, you decided to get an American football and kick it in my face. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you actually were consciously doing that. So, yeah, okay. I'm, Sorry, I David. That's all right. right but so I think our listeners, our listeners might have some understanding as to why I did that in the dream. Yeah. Oh, well, let's carry on. But I love, um, yeah, I love the Dolomites. It's great. Do you want me to explain what I can remember briefly of my dream? Yeah. Yeah, I can't really remember much of it because it's, it happened in the middle of the night and I was interrupted by a dog. But um, standard, I was at a bike race. Or wow. actually, I, this is I started if I was riding a bike and then it kind of turned into a race and then I was in a peloton and I can't. I was, there was a team, but I can't remember what team I was on. But then what was weird was the race started to get bigger and the peloton started to get bigger and my kit kept changing. And to the point where I had I had two helmets with me, which is weird. <laughs> and so uh, I was dropping back through the peloton and the tech was getting better and better. And I had to change my helmet, but I was worried if I changed it, then it would be too late because then another one would come. So I was trying to bide my time. There was no rationale to it whatsoever. Eventually got my helmet, changed my helmet. So put the one on, the new one on that I somehow had appeared. Then was riding back up and then realized we weren't that far from the finish. And I thought, oh man, I'm going to be too hot. And I had this this base layer, and I was I spent ages trying to decide whether I should change or not. And I was kind of losing con- concentration. And then I thought, I'll change. So then, I, the moment I decided that, I ended up in Seoul, in Korea. Oh, um, yeah, at a friend's place, at a shop that I. I felt I knew, but I didn't know. It was really cool. But since I'd last been there, and I've never been there, but I had been there before, it got bigger. And he got married since. And there was a beautiful staircase. And I had to go, and then I was with some other people. I can't remember who they were. And I had to go and find somewhere to get changed. And I was going upstairs, and that's when a dog woke me up. So I never found out where I was going to get changed, and, and I couldn't get back into the race. Good luck. Well, it started off relatively straightforward yeah. as, as a moving metaphor for the, totally. wor- the, the world leaving you behind. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you didn't yeah. know what team 
you weren't sure quite what team you were on, you know. So, you know, as you as you've searched for an identity post racing, David, there you've you kind of you've been trying to figure out what it is, who you are, what what your tribe is. You know, where do you fit in in the world? Because when you were racing, you were, you were very clear about what you were all about, and so that's Literally why changing hats and. Uh, Exactly. It's not no coincidence that the head, you know, that's the your rational yeah. your your rationality, sort of trying to think about protecting your rationality actually and protecting your yeah. sanity in a way. Um and yeah, and then the tech around you changing and everyone getting faster. The fact the fact that you were in this stream of riders initially that you thought was non-competitive, and then it turned into a bit of a race. Mm. Um, which you obviously found kind of, you couldn't understand the terms of reference. You didn't know where the finish line was, all this sort of thing. And I think that the, the heat, the overheating and then the need to yeah. change, the need to change. Um, I, I think, yeah, but I mean, the, the, the abrupt switch of location to the soul and the staircase and everything. Um, I, yeah, I str- I'm, I'm struggling to. Struggling to struggling deal with that, with that one. It was quite. Um, a, it was I'm quite, quite jealous a because change. I'm quite jealous because none of my dreams have had that kind of. My dreams have really been quite s- straightforward to interpret, but that's mm. that's pretty. It was nice to be back in the peloton, though. I enjoyed that. Did still anyone, do it. Anyone you knew from the old days, Yenzi, Stewie, Stewie <sighs> no, O'Grady? No, it wasn't actually. No, Aiden? it was too kind of. It was. It, it was more kind of a peloton of a thousand faces. You know, wow. couldn't really figure out who anybody was, but yeah. yeah. Do, do you often oh. have um, Peloton dreams? No, not that often. I, I'm in fact, very rarely. I, I, again, it's probably due to all this talk of bike racing. Um, but yeah, it's quite cool when you're back in it. Cause it's like, you're suddenly back in it and you're good again. Yeah. But, yeah. Which I'm not now. Do, have you, so. do, have you ever had, do you, do you ever get dreams where you win big races again, <clears throat> sort of thing? No, you know what my recurring dream was when I was a bike racer? What's that? So I, uh, I had two, actually. One when I was young, when I was a young pro was, uh, I was, uh, oh, this is a nightmare, actually, where I'd always be on a climbing, uh, a rock face, basically a cliff. Huh. And and I'd get, oh, I mean, this is the most obvious dream in the world. I always just get stuck at some point up there and I couldn't get up higher and I couldn't get down. And I'd just be stuck on the edge, terrified. I'm not even scared of heights. And yet I'd wake, I'd wake up just absolutely terrified because I'd been stuck on the edge of this cliff and Ooh, couldn't get off. Well, so that was my nightmare. That was like my kind of classic young pro nightmare. But then I had another one, which was awesome, which I'd always had before time trials. And it was always before I won, I'd miss the start. <gasps> and I, and it happened like, and I'd almost, and it'd be a kind of nightmare because within the dream, it would be horrible. And I'd miss the start of the time trial and I'd wake up like just in absolute shock. And the first few times, obviously it was terrifying because I thought, oh no. But then after a while, I'd then win that day. And so I'd wake up from that nightmare and kind of almost have a smile on my face and ah, uh, oh, I'm ready. It was okay. kind of, yeah. How so strange. that would be my, my recurring dream that meant I was mentally prepared to win because I'd worked myself up so much that I was having a nightmare about missing the start. Ah. And so it put me, put my, I'd have a peace of mind, a tranquility after that, that just carried me through the day because I was fully aware that I couldn't do anything more. 
So, but Pedro yeah. Delgado in 1989. That kind totally. Of thing. Yeah. 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 Surprising how yeah. often it yeah. happens actually, isn't it? Did you, did you ever miss your start time in a product? No, I didn't. Trip? I come close a, a couple of times, but that'd be more to a mechanical just before I was, yeah. I was always so well disciplined before because it was my speciality. It's often the teams and the riders that it's not there. It's a, remember Floyd Landis did it, didn't he? Did he? Where is at he the tour? At the tour? No, not yeah, the tour. I think he did it. I did think he? he did it at the tour he won. Like, right, or Harry Nice. He definitely did it one year. I'm sure of it. Right. Because that was, and that's an example of somebody who's like, how do you do that? It's like, you've spent your whole year preparing for this and <laughs> best team. And it's like, that's a bit of a cock up. <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah. It's understandable if you're a climber on a small team, you don't really care. Yeah. But when you're one of the favorites, it's like, yeah. 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 Let's yeah. It up. yeah. Hey, listen. Today's podcast can't happen as planned, and here's why. At around midnight last night, just after I'd fallen asleep in my hotel room here in Piacenza, I was called with the news that a colleague had died earlier on in the evening. It was, and is, impossible news to assimilate. Not one of us who knew him and worked with him would have suspected that this were possible, and yet here it is. Here we are. It's now very early on Thursday morning, I'm awake, and David's probably still asleep in Girona, but will shortly wake to read the messages I sent him to tell him the news. I've no doubt that he too will be left searching to make sense of what he reads, as if his day will have started with the sensation of walking over the edge of a precipice into thin air. Ordinarily, these words might not be something that I would choose to publish. The very act of writing them, now and speaking them, feels like a delicate process, his life and its sudden absence perhaps have no place on this rented platform. And yet, there is a reason why I want you to know who it is that is missing this morning as my hotel room starts to fill with light. Yet another small space and yet another suburb of another city on a bike race. The reason I'm here at all is because of him. And the reason that many of you might be listening to this recording is actually due to the man who's just died. Steve Doherty was the director and producer of ITV's Tour de France coverage. But those simple job titles are inadequate to describe the true position he occupied at the heart of perhaps the most long-standing and enduring production in all of British television. Put simply, he was its keystone, sitting stoically at the centre of a precarious project which was, and will forever continue to be in all likelihood, consistently close to collapse, yet somehow not just enduring but evolving. At the tour, Steve would sit in a truck for day after day in neatly pressed clothing at his mixing desk, surrounded by a bank of monitors, keeping an eye on absolutely everything, all the time. His was the calm, Cumbrian voice in Gary's ear, the voice in Chris's ear, the voice talking concisely to me and David, liaising with London, coordinating the entire show, steering it steadily in the right direction, while all around him on a regular basis, the race did its best to derail him. Unexplained power failures, sudden, violent alpine storms, stages curtailed, buses crashing into finishing lines, inflatable arches collapsing on riders, police pepper-spraying fans, riders being arrested on the tops of mountains, police raiding hotels, great champions falling and great champions winning. His voice was the still point at the centre of it all. Down the years, we had clashed. On my first tour in 2003, we fell out on a semi-daily basis. We all did from time to time with Steve, for whom there was never really much of a byway or a highway, 
only ever in my way. But his way would prove with annoying frequency, more often than not, to be the right way. He was stubborn. He could be autocratic. His ability to spot the tiniest mistake in the maelstrom of all the information generated by the race minute by minute, to pick up an anomaly or spot a pixelated detail amid the chaos of a sprint, was phenomenal. Steve adored the Tour de France. He was a hugely respected director across all sports, having worked at the Grand National, the snooker from the Crucible, live rugby and football and any number of other high-profile events. But it was to the Tour that he would always return. He never said it out loud, but he loved it and he lived it. The slow processions, the furious attacks, the cascading descents, the whole journey around France, a country he had crisscrossed every summer of his life for well over 30 years. He would have loved yesterday's stage of the Giro. I hope he was able to watch some of it. Steve's life at the Tour stretched right back to the 1980s and the inception of Channel 4's coverage. If you watch footage of Greg LeMond on the Champs-Élysées in 1989, for example, you will see that there is a tall, blonde figure standing just to his right as the American realises that he is one. That's Steve Doherty. And ever since then, if you've been watching either Channel 4 or subsequently ITV's coverage of the Tour, through the Indorine years, the Boardman era, across the carnage of Armstrong, the rise of Cavendish, the serial British wins, and extending into the wildly exciting drama of recent editions, that's Steve Doherty. You've been watching his show. When David Miller wasn't selected to race in 2014, it took about an hour before Steve had rung me to suggest that I contact Dave and ask him to join ITV's tour team. Little did Steve know I already had. But what neither David nor I knew back then was that he was scheming all along to pair us together as a commentary team. And two summers later, there we were, sat together at the finish line in Utah Beach, hoping to hell that we lived up to Steve's exacting standards. Now, five years on from that day, here I am sitting in an Italian hotel room, working at the Giro, because of him. David and I are talking together about the bike race and so much more every morning because of him. You're listening to this podcast and how he probably hated its rogue tendency to simply float facts because of him. We will resume some sort of normal service tomorrow because that's what people do, isn't it? It's an instinct which we cannot mute and which probably saves us from throwing in the towel entirely. I was going to be meeting up with Steve in around three weeks' time for the start of another adventure, and now I won't be. So for now, my thoughts are with Steve's three children and wife, and with all my colleagues at the tour, most especially James and Brian Venner and Carolyn Vickery. Thank you for listening, and goodbye, Steve. Here we go, Simon Ooh. Yates now. Well, his team set him up. Bernal now sweeps past his teammates. Ooh. Will it be third or second? Bernal is dropped. Bernal, Bernal is dropped. And the Yates is, is dropped by Yates. Yates goes now. There's the communication. He's just encouraging him. Dig in. Big acceleration now. 
but looking at this 300 metres to go, this is going to be a win for Dan Martin. What a ride against the odds then. Special, special day. Probably the best man, the best day of this man's career. What a career he's had as well. A career that has delivered monuments in Lombardia and Liège, Baston Liège. It has delivered victories at the Tour de France, the race that in many ways he has always focused on. Last year, he went to the Vuelta as well and he rode to victory there. But this is the crowning achievement in Dan Martin's career, bar none, when he gets to the line. When he gets to the line, the Irishman will have made history. The nephew of the great Stephen Roach and the Giro d'Italia, Dan Martin, completes the set. A brilliant victory from the Irishman. What drama! Hello, Ned. Uh, morning, David. We've got a... We've got a bit of bike racing to talk about and catch up on. But in the meantime, have you noticed what T-shirt I'm wearing? I did notice that immediately. You skull area, the Basque Country T-shirt from that little shop in, uh, what was the name of the village? Aha, I know. Espelette. Spot on. You got it. Espelette. That was the best one because it was the time final time trial in when G1, wasn't it? When G won the tour. Yes. Uh, t- yeah. 2018. Yep. 2018. Cause I, I went out with to kind of just sometimes get some time, especially at time trials. And I was like walking around the village and mm-hmm. thought, you know what? I'm going to buy Ned and I, Yushigal area t-shirts basically with the Basque sign. What do they call that sign actually? It's got a name, hasn't it? It's got I've no idea. Of, it looks like, yeah, it looks like a kind of, um, ventilator fan, doesn't it? It does look a lot like that. Um, and I went into this little, it's beautiful village. It's very Basque in the sense it's, it's got all the Basque houses, which are all the kind of red and green beamed and big farmhouses, lovely sort of pedestrian center. And, and they have Espelette, um, chi- kind of chilies hanging anywhere, don't they? Yeah. The kind of peppers hanging everywhere throughout the place or off the walls of the buildings and. Yeah. Great big Beautiful. bunches of them all tied together, yeah. Yeah, and I found a little shop that was selling these t-shirts and I went in there and I was in there looking around and I, as I was buying, the guy said, hey, is it David Mila? And I was like, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, what? I said, ah, il y a 15 ans, je crois. Je vous ai vu uh-huh. dans un café, uh, uh, Saint Palais. And I was like, hang on a second, what? <laughs> And because I used to live there, I lived in Biarritz, which was 15 kilometers from that, from that village where we were in. I used to train through there all the time. But it turns out that this guy who owned that shop, he'd been in a cafe, I think it was 15 years before, when I'd been, one of, been one, on one of my big pre-Tour de France training rides. And I just, I was so exhausted that year. At that point, I just overtrained myself. And I was about 40, 50 Ks away from Biarritz. And I just couldn't do it anymore. So I just pulled into this um, little village and pulled up my mobile phone and called a taxi and just sat on a park bench and waited to get picked up. But while I was sitting on this park bench, all fully kitted up in coffees, there was obviously some gentleman in a cafe across the road looking at me. And one of those gentlemen happened to be this guy who owned that shop 15 years later. And he said, no said I, yeah, and he's like, I remember watching you sitting there. And we were wondering, and uh, it turns out that they saw me climb into a taxi to get driven back home in my final big pre Tour de France ride that year. Yeah. That is nuts. Isn't That's it a nuts? great story. But I what I love about seen. that is, it, what I love about that is I'm only hearing it for the first time three years later. <laughs> yeah, I didn't tell you anyone never, that story. You never told me that story. That's, yeah. I do remember because I was sitting down, it was time, as you say, it was time trial day. You and I had, 
it was light. There was a light rain, wasn't there? And we'd been staying on the outskirts yeah. of Biarritz in that big hotel. Yeah, that weird we, big hotel. The weird, weird big hotel. And we set off. Um, and it was would have been a, a really lovely ride, but I, but it's quite tough. I remember. Anyway, oh, and then yeah. we got there a little bit late, I think, as we often did. And I was sitting there trying because it's time trial day, which involves quite a lot of prep in commentary, doesn't it? Because mm. you've got to get ready. You've got to get ready for live maths. Yeah, and you've got to do most of it because. It's, it's weirdly, just, yeah. the colour doesn't come in much, thank God. It's quite a good day for me. Yes, yeah, yeah. semi-day off. But I do remember how um, how my spirits lifted when you came into the commentary booth, you know, half an hour before we were on air, with a T-shirt for me. <laughs> really nice of you. And I still, yeah, I still, I don't know, is it okay to wear T-shirts that you're given three years later? Yeah, that's okay, isn't it? Yeah. It's a good thing. That's a, really a good, thing. good thing. Yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. Buy, buy less, buy better. And every... Every time I put this particular T-shirt on, I remember the time and the place. That's pretty cool. That is pretty Espelette. cool. Espelette. There you go. Oh, there you go. Yeah. That's happy memories, Ned. <laughs> Hello, Ned. Hello, David. Um, do you like Switzerland? Uh, uh, mm, so you're hesitating. Kind of, no, so kind of, and this is and this is not done with irony. I'm quite neutral about Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. Um, you know, I, I was because it's not the sort of place that fills you with emotions. I find, although I say that my my wife loves Switzerland because she she's kind of grown up there on and off. Um, so family have always gone there and her grandfather lived there and her dad's got a place there. And I spent some time with them skiing stuff. And it's, it's pretty amazing if you're kind of embedded in with Swiss sort of style. Um, they're pretty, mm. it's, it's a bit bizarre, but it's pretty fascinating. Just how perfect it all is. I once, um, long time ago, uh, I once went to Phil Collins's house in Switzerland Oh, awesome. In Lake Geneva. Yeah. That's very and, um, cool. Ended up watching a football match with him in his living room. I reckon Phil would be, Phil Collins would be great to hang out with. He was pretty nice, yeah. He was all right. Yeah. Did he play anything for you? Could you get, could you get him to do any music? No, but he got no. me a, he, he got me a couple of bottles of Beck's from the fridge. That's cool. It's a good story, that, isn't it? It doesn't really go anywhere, the story, beyond that. And then, then we went home, we were doing some filming. But um, yeah, no, Switzerland. We, the, the race goes through Switzerland today. And most of it is in Switzerland. And mm, it'd be interesting, to see, be interesting to see when it crosses from Italy into Switzerland. And for about 80 kilometers or something, it's in Switzerland. And then crosses back into Italy for the final, to this town that we're in, the ski resort, Madazimo. Be interesting to see whether it, the Swiss, the optical Swiss racing phenomenon that I experience every time kicks in. Um, I expressed this online actually uh, during the Tour de Romandie this year. I tweeted that I find I don't know what it is, I don't know why, but I find watching the Tour de Suisse on the telly and the Tour de Romandie on the telly quite unengaging experiences. And I, and I, I've been thinking, I still think about, I'm trying to figure out why it is that I can't remember ever watching a stage of a Swiss race and thinking, 
oh, this is just amazing. Mm, I think there's a reason for that, is that it's um, bike racing is quite dependent on on chaos, on on just randomness, uh, which you'll get, especially in <coughs> in Northern Europe, in the Netherlands and, and Belgium, where everything's changing so quickly regards the roads. And whereas in Switzerland, everything's so uniform. I mean, that's what Switzerland is famous for. Mm-hmm. As a, the tarmac's pretty much consistent all day, and it's mm-hmm. perfect. Um, the, the road furniture even seems to be well-planned. Often, yep. there's at the side of the road, there's not much to crash into, apart from beautiful meadows. <laughs> it's... It's like it's like dreamy bike racing where there's there's not much to wreak havoc because you do, do and the peloton depends on external forces often to 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 rip it to pieces um and there aren't many external forces in Switzerland apart from gradient that's my well, theory you, you you've actually articulated it and it's really interesting that um from within the peloton from your experience of actually having raced you you kind of back that up mm. there's something slightly um that, that yeah it's beautifully put. Couldn't put it better myself. It's, it's too also, perfect, isn't it? You know, you know when you go there, it's also, you know, you're going to, you can take your best wheels, best tires. This is back in the day when you kind of would differentiate. And you also knew it was going to be, it's going to be faster. It was just going to be, that's, it's, it's quite strange because you often, well, you always had back in the day, the choice between the Tour of Switzerland and the Criterium de Dauphiné as the final Tour de France stage race kind of build up. And, and, I mean, it always goes through trends of, of Swiss and Dauphiné, but but it does seem to be more and more that it's the Criterium de Dauphiné that the, the potential winners of the Tour de France choose. And I think because it's harder, because the roads are heavier, because it's more demanding physically and psychologically, whereas Switzerland is a little bit like being in Zwift. You're just kind of just <laughs> flying around this <laughs> mythical land <laughs> with nothing really, nothing really yeah. happening. So, yeah. so yeah, yeah, there you go. That's really interesting. Mm. Unless you're Rui Costa, of course. A lepidopterist named Ned has tea after rising from bed, then a ride or a jog, whilst avoiding any dog. So Dave, so that Dave can examine his head. That's what, yeah. Do you know what? You know, since you cured me the other day. Yeah. I've not had any dreams. Seriously. I've not had, I've stopped dreaming. My God, maybe there's something in this. It's incredible. I mean, seriously, you've got a real, you've got a gift. Use it wisely. We'll just, we'll just have to keep doing this until they pop up again. We'll have to just have the Dreamcast just ready to go. I had loads of dreams last night, but I can't remember any of them. One of them yeah. was a bike race for sure. But I wasn't actually... I think I've infected you with kind of... It's transfer, it's like transference. It's like I've absorbed it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. You've d- that's it. That's it. You've taken on my trauma and you've kind of... You're living yeah. with it and you're kind of coping. Thank you. Add on to my traumas, my list of traumas. It's right. like a chicken pox party, except <laughs> doing it with deep set trauma and imposter syndrome. Yeah, just hang on so 30 it, seconds. My yeah. daughter's just walked in and she just wants something. Um, All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Pause. I'll just carry on talking. You just carry on I'll talking. Just, that's fine. Just carry I'll on. just talk to myself. Yeah, that's fine. Oh, you something. Yeah. Now Dave is just leaving now. He's just walked away from the podcast. 
Well, this, I'm not going to carry on talking about the race to myself because essentially on world feed commentary, um, that's kind of what I do anyway. <laughs> so, um, while I just look at an empty zoob image of David's bookshelves, uh, without David there, knowing that he's not even listening to me, not even remotely because he's left his headphones on his desk. And so what little voice is coming through the zoom connection is just ending up echoing around his room, uh, through his little tinny little speakers of his headphones that he's left on the desk. So he can neither see me nor hear me. And he doesn't, he certainly doesn't know what I'm saying. Um, oh, he's back. What's that miss? Nothing. Just me, me talking. To, I just refuse to talk to myself about the bike race because essentially that's what I've been doing for three weeks doing world. Yeah, I was going to say that was, that would have been, and it would have not really helped also, because I need to know what you're talking about. You need to know it. So it, DSM lit it up, David, on the San Bernardino pass, which was <laughs> amazing. Two thousand meter pass. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 